Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm today's host, Stephen Hausman. I'm speaking with David Robel, the David L. Boren Professor and Merrick Chair in Western American History at the University of Oklahoma, where he also serves as the Dean of Arts and Sciences. He is also the President-Elect of the Western History Association and will begin his tenure in that post later this year. Dr. Robel has written several celebrated books and articles on the American West, including Global West American Frontier, Travel, Empire, and Exceptionalism from Manifest Destiny to the Great Depression, and Promised Lands, Promotion, Memory, and the Creation of the American West. We're going to discuss his latest book, America's West, A History, 1890-1950, which came out in 2017 as part of Cambridge University Press's Essential Histories series. Welcome to the podcast, David. Oh, thanks very much. Glad to be here. I want to begin, as we always do on this show, by hearing just a bit about the author, a bit about you. So why don't you tell us about yourself, a bit about your background, and how you got interested in the history of the American West as a career? Sure, absolutely. So I'm a British expatriate. I came to the United States from London, England, uh, back in 1985 for graduate school had originally just planned to do an MA in American history and then go back and do my PhD in uh, American history. My core interest was in, uh, sorry, I, my MA in American history and then go back and do my PhD in, uh, in European history. And my emphasis was on intellectual history, history of ideas. And uh, I ended up uh, writing a, uh, well, I ended up staying, ended up loving uh, America and wanting to stay. And uh, so I stayed uh, for my uh, PhD as well. And uh, decided to write a, an MA thesis, which expanded into a doctoral dissertation on sort of anxiety, intellectual concern over the closing of the American frontier. And uh, that work, which I thought of not really as a, a work in American Western history, it was about the closing of the American frontier and how that impacted immigration policy and political ideology, um, and land policy uh, in the period for, uh, from the late 19th century through uh, through the New Deal, through the 1930s. Uh, that uh, dissertation, when it was published as my first book, The End of American Exceptionalism, uh, ended up being reviewed very widely in Western history venues. And Western history at that point, uh, very early 1990s, I think that book came out in 1993, uh, was Western history was a very, very vibrant field. The new Western history had transformed the field, had given it tremendous popularity and, and uh, social and political relevance. Uh, and, you know, intellectual history, if we're frank, at that moment in the early 1990s was not uh, a growth field. And uh, I ended up sort of redefining myself, I guess, as a historian of uh, the American West and its place in American thought and culture. And, uh, you know, my work has mostly been in that area since. So I sort of came in through the back door as a historian of American thought and culture and then uh, worked my way into the field of Western history during a, a sort of renaissance period for the field. 
That's funny. I talked to a lot of people on this podcast who, you know, they, they say, you know, I went to graduate school and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And for you, it sounds like you, you kind of came into this almost by accident to a certain extent. Oh, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to write an intellectual history comparing uh, uh, pro-slavery and abolitionist thought uh, <laughs> in the United States uh, in the period from uh, about the 1820s uh, uh, up to the Civil War. That was what I absolutely knew I wanted to do. And uh, Within about uh, six months to a year in graduate school, I, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do and <laughs> shifted into uh, this, this uh, uh, study of the sort of intellectual concern over the closing of the frontier. And when I think back on that, it was very much a, a product of its time, right? Everybody was writing about intellectual anxiety, uh, you know, a book, The Nervous Generation on American Thought from 1917 to 1930, uh, you know, the anxious decades. I mean, you look at book titles from the period and it's uh, it's all about intellectuals being anxious. And, uh, you know, certainly I, I stand by the arguments I made in the book about the closing of the American frontier and the concerns that it uh, prompted uh, really playing a major shaping role in American history, uh, including in ways that, that uh, are instructive for us today. I mean, it's, you know, it's not We've been hearing since the 1870s and 80s that the country was filled up and it would not be able to assimilate more immigrants. And that argument was first made in relation to the closing of the frontier. So I, yeah, I did. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And that changed within about a year. And I just got really taken in with the place of the West as a sort of defining feature of American national identity and the the role of the frontier and uh, westward migration and, and conquest in uh, helping to shape that, that national identity. So in many ways, I, I don't think the shift was that great. I'm a historian of American ideas and, and the idea of the frontier and the idea of the West uh, uh, were you know, particularly interesting to me at that time and, and have remained so. And what brought you to the book that we're going to be talking about today? What drove you to write a historical overview of the American West, specifically during the late 19th and the early 20th centuries? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if, if you look at the, the, the first uh, three, three books, I, I wrote three monographs, The End of American Exceptionalism, Promised Lands, and then Global West American Frontier. And I thought of each of those books as, as sort of part of a trilogy of works on uh, aspects of American Western history that weren't terribly well uh, understood or appreciated at the time. So um, the, uh, there was a big debate in Western history in the late 80s and early 90s about whether we should talk about the frontier. And part of my point was that hey, people at the time talked about the frontier. Uh, it was a sort of central part of American thought and culture. So we needed to understand that. Uh, promotion uh, of the West and memorialization of the West were, you know, sort of to some degree sort of dismissed as the tall tales of promoters and old pioneers. And I wanted to show that there was more to it than that. So I, that was the point of Promised Lands. And then Global West American Frontier was a book about travel writing about the West. And I uh, sort of felt that travel writers had been sort of dismissed as agents of empire and not terribly thoughtful people when, in fact, uh, many travel writers who visited the American West were at the sort of forefront of uh, anti-imperial, um, you know, endeavors and uh, helped the public to understand that 
the story of the American West was part of a larger global story of, of uh, empire and conquest. So, you know, I felt like I'd written three monographs on uh, aspects of the history of the West in the period from the late 19th century through uh, about the mid 20th century. And it just seemed like a good time to write a synthetic work that was, you know, not a very sort of specific monograph, but a, more of an overview work that would uh, introduce people to what I thought were the core uh, themes uh, and ideas uh, pertaining to the West in this period and the role that the West played in sort of in shaping the nation. Uh, so, so that was the sort of motivation as a historian. The, the other motivation was that uh, an editor at uh, Cambridge University Press asked me if I would write a book. And they, they said, just to you know, give everybody a sense of how these things sometimes shift around or maybe how you're able to shift them around to what you really want them to be. But I was asked to write a book on uh, the West from 1945 to the present. And I wrote back and said, look, I just uh, don't, don't have a huge interest in writing a book on the West from uh, 45 to the present. But what about if I wrote a book on uh, the West from uh, the West in the whole of the 20th century. Uh, and they said, well, that, that, that sounds like it would work. Okay, write a proposal for that. So I wrote a proposal uh, that sort of broke the history of the West down into five uh, generation-long blocks, so five basically 20-year periods. So I was going to do a chapter on the you know, progressive era, 1900 to 1920, a, a chapter on the sort of New Deal uh uh, so, sorry, chapter on the 20s and 30s, uh, another on the sort of Marshall West of the 40s and 50s, another on the sort of, uh, you know, revolutionary counterculture West. And, you know, it was sort of five, a five chapter structure and it all seemed sort of crystal clear. And I sat down and started researching the book and, and started writing the book. And I tend to have a sort of uh, a process of research and writing that's not, you know, do the research and then do the writing, but do the research as a prompt to start writing. And then as you start writing, you figure out what you want to, to continue researching. And, and as I got into that writing and research and writing loop uh, of a process, uh, I realized that the, uh, what, what, had, what had been intended as a, maybe a 10-page introduction had developed into uh, what, you know, on the 1890s, the sort of prelude, the prologue to the book ended up being uh, sort of the equivalent of a full-blown chapter. And what was to have been one chapter on 1900 to 1920 ended up becoming uh, two chapters on the progressive era and sort of the whole uh, thing seemed to be expanding and it wasn't a series that could accommodate a four or five hundred page book and uh, and uh, uh, as I thought more about it I thought well geez it's it's this this book on this distinct period that I care about the period from about 1890 to 1950. So I'll write back to the press and let them know that I'm, you know, half or two thirds of the way through writing a draft of the book. And uh, I think it should should end at mid-century. And the uh, the press said, hey, that sounds like a good idea. End it at mid-century and then we'll, we'll uh, decide whether to do a, you know, a volume two uh, sometime down the road. So, you know, it morphed from a study of the West from 45 to the present, to a study of the West from 1900 to 2000, to a, a study of the West from 1890 to 1950. And I think it's that third incarnation that was the right one for me because it's much in line with 
you know, the period that's all, always interested me, the, the period of transition from uh, the West and the nation uh, as one where the sort of concept of the frontier had been at the center to, a mo and that's, you know, in 1892, to this moment at the middle of the 20th century when, you know, something different is, is happening. I mean, by, by mid-century, I think the West is driving the nation. You know, you can talk about the 19th century as the century where America conquered the West. And, uh, you know, once you get to the, the, the 20th century, I think it's the story of uh, the West shaping the nation as much as the nation shaped the region. You were talking about your process of writing a little while ago, yeah. and writing a broad synthesis of a vast region like the American West must pose a writer particular challenges. So how does an author begin when faced with so much historiography and with so much history? How do you begin to wade through all that? Where do you even start? Yeah, it was, it was really hard because I realized that, that there were certain figures that I wanted to have involved in the project and certain... Uh, topics that I wanted to to say a decent amount about and uh, how when you're trying to write a big synthesis how can you get a human dimension to the story so I, I really I struggled with that and I, I, I read an awful lot about each period and I had an awful lot of books in front of me on, uh, you know, on the West in the late 19th century and the Progressive Era in the 20s and 30s and World War II and the Cold War. Uh, and, uh, you know, I read a lot of state histories as well and sort of went through a process of trying to figure out how this book holds together. I mean, it's a book that tries to cover the, 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 the place is the West from the second tier of trans-Mississippi uh, state. So second tier of states west of the Mississippi. So from the Dakotas down to Texas, uh, all the way to the Pacific and not really include, I mean, including Alaska and Hawaii a little bit, but not, not to a great degree because they weren't, you know, sort of states at the, um, you know, until after the end of that period. But, uh, it, you know, it's a vast area to cover, uh, you know, from, from sort of Texas to California. And a lot of people would say, Hey, neither of those states should be, uh, in the West, and maybe the core of the West is sort of intermountain region, but I feel pretty strongly that uh, Westernness, you know, foggy uh, a notion as it is, uh, a sense of identifying with the West, a sense of, of regional identity that connects to uh, the notion of a West uh, is something that's evident, uh, at least in the Western half of the second tier of trans-Mississippi Western states. And I think it's evident all the way across the West uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, the Pacific coast. So that was the place. And so I sort of figured out, hey, I really do want to include Texas and the Dakotas and Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma, which is the, the state I reside in. Uh, and, you know, I figured out that, you know, I really do want this to be a project that ends at mid-century. And then the next stage was, well, you can't write about every single thing. So if there were four things that would work as a way to sort of loop all the content through era after era, what would they be? And as I looked at what I was trying to write in the early stages of the book, I realized that, that those four things were demography, which I never thought I, I would, you know, write anything on, on demography. It just, you know, not, 
I'd always been aware of the demography of the West, but it's, that sort of became a pretty crucial part of it because the West grew at such a, 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 an astonishing rate, at a faster rate than the rest, you know, any other part of the country uh, in this period. So that, that was a part of it. The story of, of human migration into the West uh, and how the, the demographic composition of, the, of different parts of the West changed over that 60-year period. The other thing about that 60-year period was that it, it's a lifetime, right? If you look at life expectancy uh, at the beginning uh, of the, you know, the period covered by the book, about 1890, uh, life expectancy is, is in the late 50s or 60, you know, it's about 60 years. So, you know, I wanted to look at what could be seen in the span of a lifetime. Uh, but demography, uh, obviously, uh, there's an economic dimension to it because it's about the growth, uh, the economic growth of a, of a region um, and then politics. I just, uh, you know, I've always been interested in uh, American political history, and I felt that, you know, maybe, you know, not quite enough had been written about uh, how elections had played out in the West and why that uh, mattered and how that fit into a national context. So I was pretty insistent with the publisher, and they, they, they were perfectly fine with it, that there should be an electoral map for every presidential election that would show, you know, results in the West in relation to uh, the rest of the nation. Uh, so that was the third thing. So demography, economics, politics. And then the fourth piece that, you know, was, well, there was no way it wouldn't be included. I'm a historian of American thought and culture, and I wanted there to be a sort of cultural history dimension to the book. And uh, I think a big part of that cultural history dimension is the race piece of the book. There's a lot of emphasis on uh, how different racial groups fare over the course of that 60-year period. Uh, Native peoples, um, Hispanic uh, populations, uh, 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 Asian American populations, uh, African Americans in the West. So that race is as a theme, but within a broader sort of uh, cultural framing. So for example, in the chapter on the 1920s, there's a lot of coverage of uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, as it developed in the West uh, in the in the teens and then in the first half of the 1920s. Uh, so those were the four big sort of core themes: demography, economics, politics, and uh, and sort of culture, with you know perhaps a special emphasis on on uh, race relations. Well, let's get into the book a little bit yeah. now. And why don't we just begin with the beginning of the chronology of the, of the story that you tell of the West in the book. So tell us what the West was like politically and socially and culturally at the very end of the 19th century. Who yeah. lived there? What role did the region play in the United States more broadly? Right. So, you know, 1900, uh, we've got a population of approximately 10 million people in the West, a population of uh, about... 76 million people in the nation, somewhere around there, uh, whatever that percentage is. I mean, it's low. I think it's maybe around 13% uh, of the population resides west of the Mississippi River. So in terms of political significance, and this became a big point uh, in, in the book, um, it, in terms of political significance, the West's... Uh, relatively light population uh, meant that, you know, it might not have been influential on one level, but uh, every new Western state uh, had two, two senators. 
uh, which meant that the West was disproportionately uh, sort of represented uh, in the Senate and able to, you know, push for, um, you know, growth in the region, for federal support for the region. Um, and, and, that, and that, of course, becomes a core theme of the book. I mean, it's a, it's a book about how, uh, and this is nothing new in, in the history of the American West, Gerald Nash and others had focused on this previously, but, uh, you know, a lot of talk um, among historians and among Westerners about being a, a uh, sort of exploited uh, province, a colony of the nation. And part of the story I was trying to tell was that you know, the West did have a degree of disproportionate power through the Senate, and uh, the, the West actually becomes pretty powerful as a set of connected regions pretty quickly. I mean, over the course of this period from the beginning of the 20th century through the middle of the 20th century, I mean, the, the West is a, is a juggernaut by the mid-20th century, and I, I think the sort of exploited region theme had been overplayed. So where are we at, at 1900? Uh, it's a pretty unstable region. Uh, it's a region that's, uh, that has defeated uh, uh, indigenous populations and that process of conquest uh, uh, you know, will sort of, and subjugation will carry on, uh, you know, through another century and more. Uh, uh, but it's, it's a moment uh, where, you know, there's a, there's a degree of strength, there's growing federal control, but the population is relatively small. And I wouldn't say it's a matter of political chaos, but it's certainly a matter of tremendous political opportunity as uh, party systems, party structures are not fully formed in much of this relatively new region. I mean, at the beginning of the 20th century, not all the Western states are states yet. You know, a number of them are still uh, in the territorial stage. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's a region that, that, you know, allows for sort of different kinds of allowances and it allows for uh, some changes uh, that, that can take place there uh, in advance of other regions. And I think, you know, women's suffrage is a, a great example of that change playing out in part because the sort of demographic nature and sort of uh, um, young political nature of the region uh, allowed for that flexibility for, for suffrage to arrive, uh, to not just to, it didn't just arrive, it was campaigned for, it was gained through uh, very, very hard work and sacrifice, but for suffrage to be uh, secured uh, ahead of the west of the region. So it's a, it's a region very, very much in flux. And as you enter the early 20th century, uh, it's a region um, where we're going to see some of the most uh, compelling examples, I think, of progressive era positive reform, um, like a women's suffrage, uh, and I think um, a lot of the direct democracy reforms, sort of engaging larger a larger segment of the public directly in the democratic process. Uh, but we're also going to see uh, in the West in this uh, period in the early 20th century uh, some of the you know more you know to me uh, more lamentable uh, progressive era developments, the uh, you know strong emphasis on uh, on, on race uh, as a sort of uh, dividing factor, as a strong sort of emphasis on 
uh, anti-immigration sentiment, uh, um, alien land laws enacted uh, against the Japanese in uh, California. Uh, so, you know, it's a sort of mix of, I think, very, very positive uh, progressive tendencies and some quite lamentable progressive tendencies too. It's also an era where, you know, you, you just don't have quite the same sort of developed urban centers that you have in uh, the rest of the country, but uh, um, Western cities are going, going to grow in the first half of the 20th century at a faster rate than in most of the rest of the nation. There are a few individuals that you uh, describe in the in the book that yeah. play an outsized role in history of the West. Mm-hmm. And in the, the first couple decades of the story that you tell, one of those is Theodore Roosevelt. Right. He's a very important character he in is, the yeah. at the beginning of the book. Why was he such a pivotal figure in your mind in the early twentieth century West? Well, yeah, so so Theodore Roosevelt sort of worked as a you know, a hook in some ways for some of the themes I was trying to get across and I present Theodore Roosevelt as a Western president, as a president who, who self-identified with the West, uh, but also a president who the Western states uh, identified with, and a president who knew and un- understood the West, in part from his own time there as early as the 1880s when he was in uh, the Dakotas. Uh, he, he had an affinity for the West and, you know, for, you know, conservation era, uh, for conservation reform to come about in the progressive era, I think it, it took, uh, you know, it took national level leadership as well. So you had a, a sort of symbiosis of, of regional proclivities and, you know, and, and, you know, national leanings uh, towards uh, conservation. And, and I, I would also argue that overall, not, not completely, but overall, uh, a sort of uh, a national leading, um, you know, as, uh, to the degree that Roosevelt was uh, was able to force, you know, push through his agenda, a national leading towards uh, progressive reform. There's a huge debate about that among historians, and still today. I mean, just in the last month or two, uh, uh, historians and political pundits have started in a big way to explore once more Theodore Roosevelt's uh, legacy, and we can find. Some examples of terrible racial insensitivity. We can also find uh, examples of uh, of, a, of a level of uh, sort of understanding of racial difference in America uh, that that you know one wishes we we had more of uh, in later periods. Uh, I think overall uh, he's a, a progressive-minded figure, uh, and he's a figure who uh, I think has a sort of level of commitment to. Uh, improving the lives of uh, ordinary people uh, that uh, also I'm not sure that um, the majority of presidents since have had that sort of level of dedication. So, you know, I, I, I'm fully aware of all of Theodore Roosevelt's many uh, failings as a national leader, but uh, uh, also feel that, that there was a great deal about Theodore Roosevelt's uh, beliefs uh, and convictions that helped move the nation down uh, a more progressive course in the early 20th century than it would have done had other leaders been in place. And I think most of the alternatives in the era, the alternative political leaders who were electable, 
in the early 20th century would not have provided the sort of progressive leadership that, that Theodore Roosevelt did. And I think because he had such an affinity for the West that sort of, you know, that, that in some ways facilitated the, the tremendously rapid growth of the region in that era. Well, let's talk about that progressive course a bit, because you, you've mentioned progressivism quite a few times yeah. so far, and, um, and the, the beginning of the book, the first few chapters, really emphasize that the progressive movement and progressive ideas really shaped what would become the, the, what we might think of as the modern West in really important ways. So tell us in more depth how the progressive movement and progressive ideas, how they shaped especially the demography and the landscape of the American West in the early 20th century. Yeah. So, you know, I talk in the book about a range of different kinds of progressive reforms from suffrage and direct democracy, sort of uh, broadly speaking. So the initiative, the referendum, the recall, uh, the direct election of senators, those measures that uh, enabled the public to become more directly involved in the, the democratic political process. And I think in those areas, the West is sort of at the leading edge of the nation. And part of that section of the book on the progressive era is, is about determining where the West is leading and where it's just following. And of course, you know, part of what I try to do in, in the book is look at the West as a sort of a set of regions. I mean, it's not one place uh, at, at you know, at any time in the period from 1890 to 1950, it's not one place today. I mean, it's a, it's a, a macro region made up of a, a series of other regions that collectively sort of hold together as the West in our consciousness. But, uh, you know, California, I think, is its own region. The Pacific Northwest, uh, Oregon, Washington, and maybe Idaho uh, is a part of that, is another uh, sort of distinct region that develops during this era. Uh, uh, Texas, perhaps its own region, but maybe Texas and Oklahoma, uh, you know, maybe there's a sort of Southern Plains region that heads into Kansas and a Northern Plains region from uh, sort of uh, Northern Kansas and Nebraska through the Dakotas. There's a, you know, a sort of a Northern, uh, a, a sort of a, a Great Basin region with, uh, you know, uh, with, with Utah and Nevada. I mean, there's it's a lot of regions in these and a southwestern region, and these these progressive reforms play out at different uh, speeds, and and the sort of mix is different in in each of these regions. So, uh, you know, it's hard to generalize. But I'd say if we were to generalize uh, <laughs> a little too much, then uh, we'd conclude that when it came to to those direct democracy sorts of reforms, and when it came to suffrage. The West was ahead of the nation. Uh, when it came to um, sort of labor reforms, um, the sort of, you know, social justice reforms of the era, shorter working days, uh, uh, minimum wages, uh, uh, worker safety, um, worker injury compensation, those uh, sorts of areas, and including on that sort of social reform, social justice sphere, the sort of urban reform work that, you know, reformers like Jane Addams were known for uh, in, uh, you know, in Chicago and in the Northeast. 
Uh, I think in that sort of social justice era, the West is probably in the middle of the pack. I don't think it's uh, as progressive as, uh, you know, say, Chicago or, or New York. Um, when, when it gets to the race piece, though, uh, it, it, you know, it gets a little unnerving. I mean, as somebody who, you know, identify with the, with the region, I'd like to think that the West does well in, in certain areas. Uh, and when it comes to race in the early 20th century, uh, you know, we do have some uh, I- examples of, of uh, progressive proclivities in the West, but we have an awful lot of examples of uh, uh, efforts to reduce in, uh, native uh, land holdings, uh, you know, systematic discrimination against uh, Hispanic people. Um, you know, the the uh, alien land laws in uh, in California and across uh, you know up into Oregon and Washington and other parts of the West. We, you know, it seems to me that the West is you know is maybe at the leading edge of some of the uh, worst sort of racial you know political racial divisiveness uh, of the era. So overall, I, I view it as a as a sort of mixed bag. But you, you know, progressive reform is. You know, it's one of those topics that historians have struggled over for for a long, long time. Should we even define the progressive era as progressive? Should we even use the term uh, at all? Because progressive is such a loaded term, and everybody used the term for their own good. So some of the you know most virulent uh, white supremacists in the South called themselves progressives. Some of the most virulent opponents of uh, of uh, immigration and some of the the most steadfast eugenicists in the West called themselves progressives. So, you know, does the label have any meaning? Well, you know, I think it does. I think it does have meaning because we know today uh, we have a sense of what a progressive is uh, as opposed to uh, a conservative. And I'd say that uh, what I was trying to do in the book was look at Aspects of progressive reform, some of which I view as very positive, like the direct democracy and suffrage pieces and the social justice reform, uh, and other pieces that were less progressive. And of course, progressive rhetoric was used to justify, uh, you know, empire and expansion uh, and also uh, racial division. So, uh, you know, breaking it down region by region is, is, you know, it's difficult. What you know, was there a part of the West that was more progressive overall? Well, it, it you know, it it seems that uh, different parts of the West seems to seem to do better in certain uh, positive areas of progressive reform, and uh, you know, we we see plenty of examples across the whole of the West of very uh, lamentable uh, racially divisive developments, and that sort of continues. You know, one of the questions that historians ask is, when, when does the progressive era end? Well, uh, you know, does it, does, it, does it end with uh, Theodore Roosevelt's administration does it, and, and the ascendancy of Woodrow Wilson? Does it end with uh, entry into World War I? Does it end with, uh, you know, at the end of the second decade of the 20th century? So are the 1920s a new and distinctive thing? Well, what, you know, when we start looking at developments in the West in the 20s, it seems that some of the more lamentable aspects of the progressive era uh, bleed into the 1920s. So the the Red Scare, um, the uh, eugenics movement, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, these are very much grounded in what for me are the darker 
uh, sort of aspects of uh, progressive era ideology and you know that that foundation is built upon in the 1920s and we see a uh, a very uh, you know strong Ku Klux Klan not across all of the West but certainly across parts of it including uh, Oklahoma and Texas uh, uh, Denver uh, parts of California uh, parts of uh, Oregon and Washington uh, we see some pretty strong uh, Ku Klux Klan uh, developments on the state level uh, in the West that suggests that it was some of those uh, more lamentable aspects of progressive era reform that uh, had very, very strong grounding uh, and and laid those foundations for some of the you know sort of less uh, uh, positive, in my mind, de- developments uh, in the twenties. Why do you think that was the case in the West in particular? I know that's another very large yeah. question to, to address on not a, not a very long podcast, right. but, but why was mm. the West, why did it kind of take that, that sort of bleeding edge right. in racialized violence and in white supremacist politics and policies, do you think? Right. Well, I think a part of it is, is migration. You know, you look at migratory streams mm-hmm. into the West, and what you're seeing is uh, a tremendously diverse population uh, in the West, uh, at a very, very early stage. So by the time the book begins, I mean, there are significant, uh, native and Hispanic and Asian, uh, populations in the West. And throughout the course of the first half of the 20th century, we'll see a significant, uh, African American population, uh, building across, uh, much of the West. Uh, so it, it is more diverse as a region. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that's just clear. I mean, the, the, not to say that there wasn't tremendous diversity. Uh, you know, racial and cultural diversity in other parts of the country, but we have, uh, you know, what was largely a biracial model uh, across most of the South. Uh, in uh, uh, the the Northeast and Midwest, I think, you know, we certainly have tremendous cultural diversity, but uh, the fault lines are between, you know, the new immigration from Northern and Western Europe and the, sorry, the old immigration from the Northern and Western Europe and the new immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. Uh, so that's, you know, a, a sort of different set of tensions uh, in the West. I think you ha- you have levels of of racial difference that are you know n- not experienced to the same degree in the rest of the country. I mean, most of the native populations are in the West by uh, the turn of the twentieth century. Uh, uh, many of those uh, in, in, in indigenous nations are there through you know forced removal, uh, but we have a you know very significant. Uh, you know, Asian, Hispanic uh, uh, populations there too. So I think that that helps account for it. And uh, some of the uh, European migratory streams that come into the West are uh, you know, coming into a, a region or a set of regions that's more diverse, and they're, they're working very hard to establish uh, Anglo-American uh, uh, power structures uh, in the region. So I think that uh, you know, helps explain it to some degree. I mean, when you look at the level of uh, agricultural productivity on very small pieces of land by Japanese and Japanese-American farmers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, it, it creates a level of, of threat and frustration, I think, for uh, you know, white American um, you know, uh, agricultural uh, you know, uh, uh, sectors and uh, 
uh, and you start seeing a backlash, uh, you know, against uh, you know alien alien uh, landholding. Um, you know, we'll see similar tensions as you know uh, during the 1930s, during uh, the World War II era, uh, where uh, a more diverse set of populations are coming, you know, into contact with each other. So, you know, I think demography. Uh, helps explain it. Uh, I think the efforts to sort of establish white power structures across the West help to explain it too. And how do depression and war affect the American West? Yeah. All of the big events of the middle decades of the 20th century tremendously change the region's population and the region's landscape. Events like the Dust Bowl right. and the New Deal and the shift to uh, a wartime economic footing. Right. How do all those affect the West in particular? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. I think in many ways that's the the sort of in many ways it's the crux of the book. I mean, that's what the early chapters are building up to. That uh, we're seeing migratory streams, we're seeing growing federal investment, we're seeing growing sort of regional in, uh, sort of capacity across the West, and that's helping to to lay the foundations for the transformative change that will come with the with the new deal and the, the scale of that change is just is is it's, it's remarkable so we see you know on a per capita basis the western states just do better than the rest of the country uh, we see uh, very significant migration into the west now part of that migration uh, in the 1930s is from other parts of the west so from you know, from the Dust Bowl, there's the, the sort of Southern Plains migration that we all know so much about. But there was a similarly sized migration uh, from the Northern West, from uh, from Kansas, Nebraska and the Dakotas uh, across uh, to uh, Oregon uh, and Washington uh, in particular. Uh, I mean, roughly the same sort of, you know, size migration of 300 to 500,000 people as we see from the Southern Plains. So we, we see a shift in population within the West, but we also see massive growth in, in parts of the Southwest uh, and in the, uh, the Mountain West, cities like uh, Denver and Salt Lake City uh, and the West Coast in particular. So tremendous growth in no small part because of federal investment. And it, it's, it's, you know, it's during the 1930s that we we hear a lot of rhetoric coming out of the West about the federal government, uh, you know, sort of restricting the region and the West as a colony. Bernard DeVoto wrote about the West as a, a colony of the East. But, you know, the scale of federal investment in the West, the disproportionate scale of federal support for the West uh, through the Works Progress Administration, uh, through the massive dam building and other infrastructural projects, uh, you know, it seems more to me it seems to me that the the west was you know as as much if not more a pampered uh province than a plundered province you know as we hmm. get into that period uh the west is just getting huge huge support from the federal government now that that uh support you know it, it's there for many reasons i mean the civilian conservation corps will uh plant I mean, it, it, the number of trees that are planted across the region is just astronomical. And part of that is to provide windbreaks, you know, in the wake of the Dust Bowl. Um, part of that is a sort of growing understanding of the importance of reforestation, uh, watershed management. Uh, but we're seeing, 
significant investment uh, in the West that ends up being disproportionate because of the uh, sort of still relatively light population in the West by the 1930s. So uh, the, the Roosevelt administration understands that a little federal investment will earn a good deal of goodwill. Uh, and to do that in states that have the same number of senators as any other states, but have a lighter population means that federal investment that's relatively light can actually, uh, you know, pay off. I mean, it can be disproportionate per on a per capita basis, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, uh, the scale of the spending uh, is much lighter than it would have been had, uh, you, know, it, you know, if you'd been uh, investing, you know, uh, as much of that sort of dam building money in uh, uh, more heavily uh, populated states. So, you know, a state like Nevada uh, that gets to, to take advantage of uh, the uh, the Boulder Dam that will become the, you know, na- renamed the Hoover Dam once FDR's sort of frustration with Herbert Hoover's criticism of his administration is out of the way. Uh, the, uh, you know, that dam project, you know, transforms the state economy and it's a tiny, tiny population. And because of that project alone, you know, Nevada is, is one of the very highest uh, sort of federally supported states in the 30s. So it's a massive injection of federal money to New Deal programs uh, in the 30s. And it's not just the big infrastructural stuff, uh, the scale of funding, for example, school buildings uh, in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, is astonishing. Municipal buildings across the West, uh, football stadiums, high school football stadiums. I mean, the footprint of the New Deal in uh, small communities across the West and, and, and in urban communities across the West is just, it's astonishing. So, and much of that infrastructure is still uh, around. It's a sort of living uh, reminder, I think, of uh, of what enlightened government can do to, to address a national crisis. So, uh, tremendous federal investment in the 30s, which sort of lays the groundwork for more federal investment during World War II. I mean, those uh, those hydroelectric uh, power systems that are created through the dam building uh, of the 1930s uh, mean that the West will have the capacity uh, for uh, massive scale, you know, uh, defense uh, uh, production. Uh, once the nation moves into a war mode uh, in World War II. And then the scale of of migration into the West in the World War II years dwarfs anything that we've seen uh, before. Uh, so we, we see significant migration into the region in the 30s, and then uh, in the 40s, the West is like a magnet drawing people from the rest of the country with uh, uh, corporate leaders like Kaiser uh, literally uh, commissioning trains to... Uh, bring in a new workforce from from all across the country. Let's take a a bird's eye view of the region at the end of the story that you tell in the book. What does the West look like in 1945-1950? How is it different and how is it similar to the West that you describe at the beginning of the book? Yeah, so I I mean the demographic growth is is tremendous. I mean the, the West has gone from you know, having a tiny percentage of the national population, you know, sort of 13% of the population uh, at um, uh, the, the turn of the 20th century uh, to, uh, you know, a much, much more significant uh, portion 
uh, of uh, of the uh, the national population residing west of the the second tier of Mes Western Mississippi states, so uh, trans Mississippi states. Uh, the growth uh, in uh, the urban West is also uh, you know quite astronomical. I mean, it dwarfs uh, urban growth in the rest of the nation, or virtually all of the rest of the nation. There are a few examples here and there of a, a city that sort of in the same sort of ballpark as uh, as Western cities, but it's it's tremendous growth across the region and tremendous uh, urban growth uh, in the West. So by 1950, um, you know, I'd say the West has gone from being, uh, you know, three generations have passed uh, since the, the sort of end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And the the Depression and then World War II and then the Cold War, the context of the Cold War have played a, a hugely, hugely important role in sort of elevating the West to sort of the, the center of uh, national politics. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's a region where the sort of national, the, the, the regional distinctiveness, the sort of landscape uh, distinctiveness uh, of the region is uh, sort of drawing people at, at rates that have never been seen before. So the national parks, for example, uh, in 1940, 17 million people are visiting the national parks. Uh, get to uh, 1955, and that that number is more than tripled. You've got 55 million people visiting the national parks uh, every year. So uh, the West has sort of grown uh, as a part of the sort of national story that people can get to and visit on a more uh, regular basis. So the sort of you know development of uh, National transportation systems, you know, not completely developed by this point, but uh, the, the sort of development of jet air travel, I don't think is is sort of taking away, the, you know, dissipating the concept of a West and Western distinctiveness. It's actually uh, bringing more people into uh, the dramatic landscapes of the West. So, uh, so that that's a you know a point at mid-century uh, where I think the West is sort of continuing to help uh, sort of define. The country. I mean, it's a sort of delicate cultural set of cultural landscapes. I mean, Japanese internment and relocation uh, has taken uh, has had a huge impact on uh, that uh, set of populations. Um, native uh, peoples across the West have been uh, adversely impacted or being adversely impacted by a new sort of termination uh, emphasis in the Cold War years. Um, you know, while Mexican Americans and African Americans have made gains uh, during the World War II and early Cold War years, uh, we're also seeing uh, you know, mass deportations. Uh, so Operation Wetback uh, uh, between '54 and '57. Uh, so, you know, strong uh, racial uh, tensions. Uh, we're starting to see. Uh, some positive changes, but um, you, you know it's not until mid-century. I mean, in California, uh, that anti-miscegenation laws, uh, you know, laws prohibiting uh, people of different races uh, having relationships, it's not until 1948 that those laws are, are lifted in the state of California. You know, I understand that what's on the books and what's enforced is not necessarily the same uh, thing. 
<clears throat> but anti-miscegenation laws are going to stay in place uh, in uh, Oklahoma and Texas uh, until the late uh, 1960s. Uh, but by 1950, I think uh, Southern California uh, is one of the great sort of urban centers uh, of the nation and is playing a leading role in sort of shaping uh, the political scene and think about the political figures who will come out of uh, Southern California. So uh, Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon uh, among them. Uh, the West, I think, is introduced, is impacting the national political scene uh, far more than, uh, than previously. Uh, you know, if, if we think about my conception of the West from, you know, Texas to California, then, uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, uh, George Bush, uh, one and two, uh, you know, uh, and, and Barack Obama, uh, born in Hawaii, uh, all, uh, you know, a part of that story of, of Westerners dominating uh, the, the uh, political landscape. So, uh, you know, I think in, in many ways, what we've seen is a transition from, in 1890, a region that's... Uh, you know, newly conquered um, to uh, a region that that is uh, playing uh, a central role in shaping the nation's sort of political and economic uh, future, setting the sort of patterns for uh, urban development and so on. So it's it, it's a massive shift. Perhaps you just answered this question a little bit, but if there's one takeaway that you hope readers might come away from this book with? What would that be? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I always get that so, reaction from my guests when I ask that so question, hard. but I, mean, I, I keep asking Yeah, anyway. I think one takeaway <laughs> for me uh, has been, and it was the writing of the book, the process of researching and writing the book that really drove this home, and that's that demography matters. Uh, unless we know who is where and when and why they've gone there and what they've expected and how much of their expectation has become reality uh, until we know those basic dimensions of a historical story uh, much of what we're doing is is sort of ungrounded speculation so i think you know as a historian of american thought and culture who'd you know i'd certainly paid attention to demography in previous books uh, but none of them are driven by demography uh, in the way this one does. So demography matters. I think that would be uh, one real key. Uh, another, if you could let me have another, would be that uh, that race relations matter. And it's one of the things that uh, we struggle with as much as anything in this, uh, in, in this country and have throughout the nation's history. And uh, that that theme of the book, that emphasis on uh, the racial uh, struggles, the efforts of peoples uh, of color to uh, to come to the West uh, or to uh, peoples who are in the West to uh, be able to assert sovereignty, uh, to um, you know, find a, a, a place, force a place for themselves, demand uh, and secure places for themselves uh, within uh, the the national body politic. Uh, you know, for for me, was a part of the story that that I kept, you know, coming back to. I mean, race and race relations 
that that's a theme that sort of weaves its way uh, through the book. So uh, yeah, I think you know demography matters, and you know demography and race are you know very much uh, inter interrelated. Um, if there's one other thing, it's that this book, for all of its emphasis on politics and economics and demography, which I think are the pieces of historical analysis that we would say place history in the social sciences, right? We, uh, we always wonder where our history departments at universities should be placed. Are they in the social sciences or are they in the humanities? And I think of myself more as a scholar of the humanities than the social sciences, to, to be frank. Uh, but for all of the emphasis on demography and politics and economics, uh, the pieces of the book that I, I would say were the ones that I I enjoyed writing the most, uh, the the ones that I was sort of naturally drawn to as a historian of American thought and culture were they were those parts. They were the cultural history parts of the book. So uh, that section on the the Klan in the 1920s and and trying to answer the question: hey, Was the Klan? Uh, as significant or more significant in the West than in other regions of the country. Um, that, uh, you know, th those moments where I was engaged more in, in cultural analysis, the part of the book where I'm writing about uh, migration from the Southern Plains, I'm writing about John Steinbeck and Kerry McWilliams and Dorothea Lang and uh, efforts to advocate for uh, migrant labor laborers and their families. Uh, those, you know, those are the parts of the book that are sort of closest to my uh, identity uh, as as a historian. So um, those are really important. And, there, and there's one more thing, and I, I've managed to, to to massage your one key point <laughs> into five or six. One other thing that that I think is core to what I was trying to do in this book is that I believe regionalism and regions matter. And uh, there's been so much talk oh, for the last 30 or 40 years about the death of regions. In fact, that talk has been going on uh, throughout much of the 20th century. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, and I deal with this at the beginning of the book, looked forward to this time when there'd be no more regions in America. There'd be no, he says, there'd be no south, north or south or east or west. We'd all be fully united uh, as, as part of one greater America. And that was, uh, that was Wilson's vision. And it was very much in conflict with the vision of uh, the historian Frederick Jackson Turner, who talked about regions as fit rooms for a worthy house, how regions could be part of a nation and could be different, and the identity of a nation could be uh, developed and maintained through the strength of its regions. And uh, regions change. The demographic composition of regions change, but uh, I would argue that regionalism is still a hugely important factor uh, in the United States and throughout American history, certainly in the period uh, that's covered in this book. Regions matter hugely. And uh, I'm writing a book about a larger West, but I'm also writing a book about a set of subregions, or was writing a book about a set of subregions within the West. And for much of the period, uh, that I'm covering, there is a movement in the United States. Uh, I'd say it lasts from 
uh, about 1910 or 1920 uh, up uh, through the World War II years. And it's, it's a regional movement. And uh, the New Deal is shaped by that. The work of the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, and the art that it did emphasizing the significance of regions, uh, distinctive regional uh, literary traditions and art forms. Uh, that uh, emphasis on the regional distinctiveness of different parts of the West uh, is something I wanted to emphasize. I think it's something that's still uh, a sort of vibrant part of uh, the West and of all American regions today. And the notion that drive along, you know, any interstate and everything looks the same and you have the same big box stores, right? The same Best Buys and Walmarts and Costcos and the same gas station and uh, food chains. And so America's all become one uh, uniform, homogenous, stale thing. And it's just, uh, to me, that, that seems a little narrow-sighted and narrow-minded and so, you know, get off the, uh, you know, the immediate area around freeway interchanges and uh, explore the different areas of, of the West and the rest of the nation. And you find that regional identity, attachment to place, uh, attachment to uh, geographic areas smaller than the nation, sometimes of county size, sometimes of uh, a, a city, sometimes a whole state, sometimes a region like uh, the Rockies or the Pacific Northwest, those attachments matter. Uh, they matter a huge amount. And I think I was right, and I was writing about a period uh, when regionalism was uh, experiencing a renaissance uh, in America. So that was part of the balance, right? To write a book about the West when you, 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 you understand that people identify with the West as a region, but they also identify very, very clearly with uh, smaller geographic entities within that larger region. You mentioned your identity as a scholar a little while yeah. ago, and now that you've completed, as you put it at the beginning of the show, now that you've completed your first trilogy of books and now <laughs> this synthetic right. work, uh, I'm wondering if, briefly, before we wrap yes. up here, if you could give us a preview of uh, any projects that you have uh, that you're yes. working on now. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. So um, as, a, as a graduate student, uh, as part of my program, you, you had to do a field of study outside of uh, your, your main field. So I, I did fields in, uh, I mean, outside your main discipline. So I, I did fields in um, 19th and 20th century American history and in American uh, intellectual history. And I also did fields in Russian and Soviet history and in colonial and modern Latin America. Uh, but I did a field outside of history in American literature and the, the first course I took in that field was taught by, um, I think still the preeminent living Steinbeck scholar, uh, Robert DeMott. And uh, that course on Steinbeck, uh, if you look at uh, all the books I've written, I somehow managed to find a place for John Steinbeck uh, in all of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he features a fair bit in America's West. He featured uh, uh, in, in all of the others, too. And I'm working now on a book, and it's harder now because I have a sort of administrative load uh, as dean that's uh, sort of higher than what it had been in the past. But I'm working away on a, a it's a it's a history of America from 
the beginning of the New Deal to the end of the Great Society. So from about 32 uh, to 68. And it's through the lens of John Steinbeck, who was uh, uh, America's most widely read uh, writer uh, in this period. Um, and uh, we think of Steinbeck as, you know, I think we tend to remember Steinbeck mostly for his um, migrant labor and migrant families uh, advocacy of the 1930s. And I think that's a very, very important reason uh, for remembering Steinbeck. But I think he captured the sort of common strivings of the American uh, people uh, better than uh, any writer, any other writer in the 20th century. And as you move into the World War II period, John Steinbeck is a, is a government propagandist. He's writing for the government. Uh, some of the works that he publishes during the period are works that uh, are commissioned by the government to help the war effort. And he's doing this work gratis for the government at the very same time that the government is investigating him for his uh, uh, alleged uh, radicalism uh, during the second half of the 1930s. Uh, and because he is under investigation, uh, he's not able to get uh, a commission in the armed forces, but he will travel to, uh, to London and North Africa and Sicily and Italy as a, as a war correspondent um, for the New York Herald Tribune and will write uh, these remarkable dispatches um, uh, focusing on the experience of American troops. Uh, becomes a pretty significant figure during the Cold War years uh, as well. And when we think about the sort of transition from the relativistic thought of the 1920s and 30s to the more absolutist uh, thought uh, of the 40s and 50s with the, the horrors of the Holocaust and uh, the context of the Cold War, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian, wrote about a sort of uh, a rediscovery of sin. Uh, and you, you see that in Steinbeck's work. You see a shift away from the focus on the collective to a focus on the, the individual uh, and an emphasis on the power of evil and the need to overcome it. You see that in uh, his second uh, mammoth, you know, monumental novel, uh, East of Eden. Uh, and then Later in life, as you move into the 60s, and Steinbeck was born in 1902 and died in 68. So, you know, his 30s, for the most part, are America's 30s, and his 40s are America's 40s, and so on. Uh, as you move into uh, the 1960s, and, and you're getting into Steinbeck's uh, own 60s, uh, he, he has that remarkable uh, trip across the country that results in the book Travels with Charlie, uh, which includes some of the most powerful commentary on uh, uh, white Southern opposition to uh, civil rights integration in the South, uh, includes uh, very insightful commentary on environmental uh, conditions and uh, you know, a range of different, sort of taking the pulse of the nation. Uh, Steinbeck also in this period publishes The Winner of Our Discontent, which I think will become a more important uh, novel in uh, decades to come uh, as we uh, figure out that Steinbeck was uh, thinking in some very, very interesting ways about uh, uh, how materialism uh, in the United States, sort of post-war, post-World War II materialism uh, was impacting social values. Uh, and then uh, Steinbeck in the very last years of his life, uh, his sons serve in Vietnam and he will serve briefly as a war correspondent in Vietnam. He's uh, quite unpopular as a generally as a supporter of Lyndon Johnson's policies, though he goes not as a, 
employee of the government, but as an independent reporter. Uh, but by the end of his life, he starts to veer away from support for Johnson's policies, in part because of the influence of his sons who were serving in the military. So I think it's a wonderful, this is a long answer to your question, but I think a, a, an arc from New Deal progressive to almost uh, sort of neoconservative, uh, but it's a, uh, I use Steinbeck as a lens to, to look at those key changes in American thought and culture in that that middle period of the 20th century, which I think of as a pretty distinctive period, the, the uh, you know, the age, the second great age of modern American liberalism from the New Deal uh, through the Great Society, uh, through the lens of, of John Steinbeck. So that's what I'm, I'm uh, working through right now, uh, writing different parts of it, traveling off to different archives, uh, whenever I've got spare moments to research different parts of it, and was just at... Uh, the LBJ Library and the Harry Ransom Center in uh, uh, Austin, Texas, a couple of weeks ago, and I was at Stanford working in the Steinbeck archives there uh, last week, and need to get to the Morgan uh, Library in New York and to uh, the Steinbeck Holdings at uh, UVA, uh, and I'm currently serving as the scholar in residence, uh, visiting scholar at the uh, uh, National Steinbeck Center in Salinas, California. So. Right now, we'll focus on, uh, on Steinbeck, but Steinbeck is a particularly important uh, voice uh, for understanding America in this crucial middle third of the 20th century. So look for David Robel coming soon to an archive near you. <laughs> Great. If I can get away from uh, administrative duties <laughs> periodically, I'll, I'll be coming. So. I know we're running a bit long, um, so if you have the time, I have one yes. final question for you, if I may. Um, and I wanted to ask you, since you are soon serving in a leadership position in the field itself as the president-elect of the Western History Association, I'm wondering if I could get your, your sort of brief thumbnail take on what the state of the field of Western history is right now. What do you see as the strengths of Western history, and where do you think the field is going? What might it do to improve in the coming yeah, years? I think that's a, that's a great question. You know, I came into the field of Western history around, geez, around, I guess, I mean, working on the dissertation. I mean, I had to be aware of what was going on in the field of Western history. So I guess I've been working in the field for 30 years now and that was an incredibly sort of powerful moment of the the new western history renaissance in the late 80s uh, through I, I think really the mid 1990s and we saw a, a sort of tremendous emphasis on on the west in the 20th century uh sort of a, a shift into focusing on the more you know on the modern west and we still see an awful lot of emphasis on the 20th century. So I think that's one sort of long-term change that we've seen in the field. I, I think, uh, you know, Western history, uh, not, not exclusively, but largely prior to the renaissance of the, uh, um, the late 80s and, and 1990s, uh, had, had a tremendous emphasis on the 19th century. So there's been much more work on the 20th, obviously a, a, an awful lot of work on uh, environmental history, which I think has been a, a crucial part of the development of the field. Uh, another uh, part of Western history that uh, I think has proven uh, tremendously uh, important is the development of, of global comparative frameworks for thinking about the region. So uh, our 
the our theme for 2020 for the the conference where I'll I'll have the great honor of delivering my presidential address is uh, migrations uh, meeting grounds and memory. Uh, so uh, the sort of larger comparative global frameworks looking at, uh, for example, conquest of indigenous peoples and also uh, resistance and and uh, survival of uh, indigenous peoples in the West and placing that into a sort of larger set of global framings. A lot of emphasis in the field on uh, borderlands, uh, on, uh, you know, one wishes uh, the political debate today would be better informed by the great work that's been done by historians of the West and uh, of Western uh, borderlands uh, on, you know, our, our need to understand uh, these uh, you know, transnational, binational, uh, you know, communities where uh, people live with different uh, 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 sort of uh, affiliations and identities and uh, have friends and neighbors across borders. Uh, and those borders are, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we tend to, we've had a lot of emphasis on the sort of fluidity of those borders and uh, the tremendous cultural advantages of that sort of exchange uh, so borderlands, uh, environmental uh, themes. Uh, I think we're, we're sort of now that we've seen an awful lot of scholarship since the 1990s on 20th century topics. Uh, we, we have continued to see tremendously important work uh, on the uh, 19th century West, uh, uh, Native American history, uh, the history of uh, migrations uh, uh, from uh, South and Central America. Uh, also, I think uh, very, very important work on, you know, even earlier periods. So looking at, uh, at sort of, you know, late 18th uh, century too. So I think the field is tremendously vibrant. The conference in uh, Las Vegas uh, looks to be uh, the largest conference that the Western History Association has had in uh, a good number of years. I think we may well see uh, you know, over a thousand people. Uh, be surprised if we don't see over a thousand people uh, at that conference. Uh, I think it's uh, you know if there's a change, it's that uh, I mean one big broad change is that it, it it would be very hard to write about the history of the West in the way we used to as a sort of a story of Anglo settlement and the winning of the West, a sort of triumphal uh, story uh, without significant complications. We now have a far, far greater emphasis on how complicated, how uh, messy uh, a story that's been. And a part of that, one last part of the sort of development of the field in recent decades that's important to emphasize is the, the uh, strong emphasis on uh, the theme of historical memory. Uh, we've had very, very important books on a range of uh, of, of tragic uh, massacres like Sand Creek uh, and works in general on how uh, a lens on historical memory uh, can serve as a lens onto, um, you know, processes of, of empire and colonialism. And one very, very last thing, and, you know, keeping in the habit of you asking for one thing and me, me offering half a dozen, <laughs> uh, one other area of significant growth 
in the field of Western history, and I think we're likely to see more work in this area, is the theme of uh, incarceration. Um, tremendous amount of, of really excellent work going on uh, on the, the theme of a carceral West, a region that has uh, uh, incarcerated peoples, contained peoples, uh, um, surveilled and overseen peoples um, in uh, uh, often quite extreme ways. So we've seen some very, very important books in recent years, and there, there are a number of uh, additional important ones that are in the works. So I'd, David yeah. Robel. Oh, so I'd I'm like sorry. to think that uh, you know uh, a, a final plug for the the region that I yeah. study. I'd like to think that in the last uh, two or three decades, some of the most important enlightening work uh, in the the larger field of American history has been done uh, in the field of of Western American history, and that success of the field uh, itself uh, offers good evidence uh, good evidence of the vibrancy of of uh, regionalism and, and regional emphases, but the West has gone national, it's, it's gone global, and I think Western stories uh, have become bigger and, and more significant in recent decades. And one flip through the Western History Association conference program that just came yes. out recently for 2019 will definitely show that that is certainly yes. the case. Yes. David Robel is the David L. Boren Professor at the University of Oklahoma, where he holds the Merrick Chair in Western American History and is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. Starting later this year, he will serve as the President of the Western History Association. His latest book is America's West, A History, 1890-1950, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 2017. Thank you so much for talking with me today, David. Stephen, thank you so much.